Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Guys, I have a really fascinating interview today with Dr. Michael Blackwell. Dr. Blackwell, like his father, earned a doctorate of veterinary medicine from Tuskegee University. He also earned a master's of public health degree from Loma Linda University. He currently serves as the director for the program for pet health equity at the University of Tennessee. His mission is to improve access to veterinary care for underserved families. I reached out to Dr. Blackwell um, because I have been thinking a lot about our responsibility to pet owners, about access to veterinary care, about um, pricing ourselves out of reach uh, of, of a lot of pet owners. I, and I'm just sort of having those thoughts and, and kind of uh, thinking about what, what does this look like and what does equity uh, when it comes to ac- access to pet health care look like. Uh, Dr. Blackwell has a lot of ideas. He is a very sharp individual. He is doing a lot of things behind the scenes uh, in this area. And so, guys, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. It has given me food for thought for days and days and days since we did it. So, uh, anyway, I hope you will enjoy Dr. Michael Blackwell. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help Welcome, welcome, Dr. Michael Blackwell. Sir, uh, thank you for being here. I can't tell you how honored and excited I am to have you on the program. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to visit with you and your, your audience. Oh, your, your, let's start for those who don't know you, your resume is amazing. I mean, besides you have been the Dean at the College of Vet Medicine uh, at, um, at the University of Tennessee, Chief of Staff for the Office of the Surgeon General of the United States, Deputy Director for the Center of Veterinary Medicine, Food and Drug Administration, and Chief Veterinary Officer at the U.S. Public Health Service. Uh, you are currently working with um, with a group that I'm very excited about. You are the director of the Program for Pet Health Equity at the University of Tennessee. Wow. Uh, what 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 an amazing career and uh, and journey you've had to be here. Uh, there's a million things I could ask you about. Uh, the thing that I wanted to, to start unpacking with you a little bit today is your work at the uh, at the Program for Pet Health Equity. Can you talk a little bit about about what that is uh, and sort of yeah, what what is that? How did you get involved? Uh, and sort of, I guess, what is your what is your vision for this program? We are working to improve access to veterinary care. Your audience is probably quite familiar with all of the the debate and dialogue that's going on in human health care. It's uh, an issue that families in this country face, and as we move into the spectrum of the working poor and those who can't work, uh, of course, the problem is more severe. And so uh, over the years, uh, we've seen a growing population of people struggling to acquire services that they need. And one of those services, of course, is veterinary care. And Mm -hmm. so our work is dedicated to a more structured approach to improving the opportunity to receive veterinary care. Yeah, I I love it. I um for for the last, especially last five years, but but definitely the last ten years, 
I, I look at our profession, which I love, and I see, see the standard of care going up, which I think is great. I also see the financial constraints of, of our profession and, you know, in the student debt that veterinarians are carrying. And we saying, oh, man, we're, we're getting in a, into a financial hole here that we have to get out of. And then I'm in the exam room and I'm talking to people who are on fixed incomes. You know, I'm talking to people that I'm sure are on Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you know what I mean, that that have significant financial constraints. And and uh, and Michael, I, I don't want these people to be priced out of having a pet or being a responsible pet owner. And like, I feel that at a deep moral level, you know, and, and I can, I can lay that out as, you know, in a very pragmatic way and say, well, look at the benefits to, uh, to people's health from having pets and look at the mental health benefits of having pets. And I, I can lay it out that way, but I just think even deeper than that, just in my core being, I say, I'm not, that's not what I signed on for. You know what I mean? To yeah. say we we serve people who have the resources for this. And like, yeah. I, I don't think I'm alone in feeling that way. No, Andy. And I do appreciate your your comments, your sentiment. Um, you've touched on what's really at the heart of uh, of the matter. Two things. One is often described as the elephant in the room, and that is, yeah. If people can't afford a veterinarian, they probably shouldn't have a pet. Uh, and I get the logic behind the statement. But when we consider the benefits that humans derive through these relationships, it's hard to not support the human-animal bond. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, when we go down the socioeconomic ladder into the working poor and those in poverty, uh, we see even more uh, benefits that can be derived, meaning um, of all the things that can help to improve their health outcomes, their reason for being, for getting up. I'm thinking about that senior who would be combating isolation and loneliness as an example. Then it's hard to defend preventing people from having these relationships. But then we look at ourselves as a profession. None of us signed up to turn people away, not helping them, knowing that we have the knowledge, skills, and and, and abilities to help. We didn't sign up to euthanize individuals with treatable medical conditions. And so our our own mental health uh, well-being uh, is actually threatened by the circumstances that we're faced with. Oh, I think that's oh, that's so. I think that's so true. I I think uh, when you start talking about economic euthanasia and things like that, and um, and and yeah, a lot of the problems with sort of burnout, compassion fatigue, things like that in our profession, they absolutely have a money component to them, and it comes yeah. down to to uh, you know, to those hard those hard things of of resource allocation and sort of saying, well, this person can't afford this thing, but you know, morally I, I really struggle with this. And so, yeah, I, I do think that our wellness as a profession is tied up in that. I think that's a fantastic point. How did you, so, okay. So you have had this, this, um, I, I just, I'm, I am jealous of your career path. I, I am, I'm a change junkie. I like to do new things. I like new challenges, you know, and I look at, at all the things that you have done and said, this is a person who has really lived to the fullest professionally. And you've just, you've done so many things. Um, can you, can you walk me from, from, from this realization that, that you sort of had, I guess that we're sort of talking about, uh, and, and it seems like you and I sort of are seeing a lot of the same things. Help, help me start to conceptualize what uh, pet health equity looks like. Yes. So health equity as a term 
is not real familiar to many veterinarians. It is a familiar term in human health care. It's a core principle that um, everyone deserves an equitable chance at health care. Mm-hmm. It's not a term that starts to define levels, if you would, but mm-hmm. just the core principle that everyone deserves health care, <laughs> access to health care. It's actually a a social justice matter, and I, I, I hope that we'll talk a little bit more about that. So what we wanted to do is introduce the concept of health equity in veterinary medicine. It turns out that we're actually talking about the same population. Why do I say that? Because the other thing that we emphasize is, you know what? We're in the business of providing health care services to families whether it's pets or livestock, frankly. But in this case, we're talking uh, primarily about pets. So the concept of delivering health care to families and looking at it from the other end of the spectrum, families deserving access to health care, that's what health equity is about. It's not equal treatment. It's not Mm -hmm. the... the, uh, 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 an equal type or level of care, but it's saying that there is some level of care that is intended to be available because you deserve yeah. it. Right. Oh, yeah, Ab- absolutely. What does that look like on in human health care? And then how do you see that in in uh, in action transitioning over to vet care? So help me start to figure out what this what this really looks like in the veterinary space. Sure. Just. Quick background. So during 23 years with the United States Public Health Service and the various roles that I had the fortunate uh, opportunity to serve in, I came to appreciate that over the decades, many decades, this country has really um, built a number of ways, call them programs or systems, to provide health care, to ensure health care for all citizens. Case in point, a stranger, you and I can walk into any emergency room in any community in this country needing help, and they must help you. It's There's no debate about it right. because uh, it, there's that core principle that everyone deserves access to health care. Well, I, I looked at our side and I contrasted veterinary medicine with human health care. And of course, we've always been different. We even pride ourselves on being different. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sometimes, I think, to our detriment because not everything in healthcare, human health care is bad, as clunky mm-hmm. as it can be and so forth. But I looked at our side and what I saw was an industry that's doing tremendous work. I mean, as the public started asking for higher and higher levels of health care, we responded, we trained, and we, we were providing, um, uh, utilizing uh, cutting-edge technologies as we are today. Uh, I remember when my dad was in practice, it was unheard of, really, to try to treat cancer. Uh, you know, euthanasia was considered the treatment option at some point. But increasingly, you know, we, we, we're we treating cancer and heart disease and many other very, very terrible uh, conditions. So our industry responded. But we also continued as a cash basis only industry. 
Meaning, Mm -hmm. even to this day, we're in the 21st century, and yet less than 2% or around 2% of annual transactions involve insurance, which means Mm -hmm. then we have a model that expects people to come in and reach into their pocket. It may be to grab a credit card and pay for that care. When we do look at the insurance um, options that have been available uh, over the years, uh, most often they were reimbursement programs. So you still had to pay for the care front and then go to the insurance company for reimbursement. Well, guess what? While this industry was reaching our flight with cutting edge medical care and yeah, still expecting cash, our society continued to change. A milestone year for me was 2008 when the Great Recession happened. At that time, I was working uh, at a a shelter. Uh, I I had been on the, I was the board chair for five years and and was in running that shelter for two years to reorganize it. And um, 2008 recession happened. The families lined up to relinquish their loved ones. And the, the the angst, the distress there, and let's understand what was going on. Some just couldn't feed them anymore, but there were those who were doing so because they couldn't afford the medical care. And the pet actually had a treatable situation. And so we saw an explosion of, uh, of the number of families moving to the poor working class, if you would, out of the middle class. And of course, we never really significantly recovered from that, meaning we still see this contraction of the middle class in America. And according to the Pew Research Center, reported in 2018, if we go back to 1970, for example, the amount of discretionary money in the pockets of the middle class continues to drop. Now, some would say, well, that may be the worst case scenario, but the best case scenario is actual income has been flat mm-hmm. when adjusted for inflation. And so what's happening in my mind is we have this wonderful service delivery capability, but it's directed at the privileged. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I mean by privilege? I mean those who have the privilege of being able to walk in and pay cash mm-hmm. for health care. Yeah. Now, we don't look to that model in human health care. It's just not even it never comes up. <laughs> you know, the idea that you pay out of your pocket for health care and human health care. Right. Uh, now, the pricing is quite different. Uh, I get that. But the principle here is what I'm trying to hammer. So what we see in human health care are determined in efforts intent to build systems that reach everybody. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. equity. Because equality, yeah. say you build one system and you treat everybody the same. That's veterinary medicine. Equity says, no, not everybody's the same. We have to, tr- to build different systems to account for the differences that exist in the population. Okay. I, I definitely understand. Um, and to your point about, you know, people reaching into their wallet uh, with us versus when they go to the urgent care center or the emergency. That's why we get that criticism. Um, I don't pay this to my doctor when I go there. You know what I mean? Because they're making a $20 copay, you know, some something like that versus yeah. we expect, you know, full payment up front. Those are yes. very different experiences. Yes. Okay. Uh, I am, I am with you. Tell, talk to me a little bit. Okay. 
about the underlying structural differences in human healthcare versus vet healthcare. So when people go into the emergency room, you know, in, in a human hospital, um, and th- they are going to get treated. It's always been my understanding that there is some sort of government support behind that. Is that is that true? Um, and when we start to talk about pet health equity, does something like that factor in, or or, or is there a different way to, um, to 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 pick this to pick this load up? I guess it's a very very important question. So again, looking at human health care, um, there are two. There's one fundamental difference, and that is a third party is in the mm-hmm. room. Okay, or in the arrangement, the relationship, third-party payer. The two primary funders of human health care are the human health insurance industry and government programs. Now, those two work a bit differently because in human health care, utilizing actuarial analysis, they're able to predict what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how severe it's going to be, and how much it will cost. And by having enough healthy people in the pool paying a small amount, or relatively speaking, every month, a premium, then mm-hmm. those costs get spread out in a way that when something happens, there's money to support that care. The government programs, of course, are built on tax dollars. And um, uh, we and, and I am happy to to have my tax dollars go toward helping those who mm-hmm. need the, the support, the help. Um, but in this case, then, uh, again, uh, it's intended to ensure that people have care. Now, in both instances, measures are, make it, are taken. Measures are made to understand how, what diseases are distributed in our population, mm-hmm. how severe are those diseases, and what does it actually cost to take care of that? Now, what I just painted as a picture is absolutely missing in veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because we don't work as a system. We work as a collection of entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, independent, and now more and more corporate entities, but not that system's approach. So what we do need to build in veterinary medicine is a more systems approach to ensuring health care for all. There, There are, Andy's many other differences that uh, I could could get into, but those would be, to, to me, the core foundational elements that we are, are looking at. Um, so if you'll notice, I never said anything to suggest what we need is a system that works like human health care. <laughs> right. No, right. I didn't no, think you were going to try to sell me on that. I, I was like, oh, that's not where we need to go. Yeah. No, there, there, there are, there's a need to have some differences. And so what we're doing in our work literally is trying to bring about that structure, that predictability and consistency to make those measures, to build the systems whereby we start to be able to um, make predictions about the cost of care going forward um, and bring a third party into, into the room. Because without a third party, here's what we're sitting with. I've got a client in front of me with a medical need that I can reach. I can I have the knowledge, skills, and capability, but the client doesn't have enough money. Well, right now, what happens in that instance too often is they're sent away unhelped or the patient is euthanized. 
What and we will still see that I'm sure on some level. What we believe is important now is to introduce that third party option. Now these third party options exist. Mm-hmm. You know, AVMA, for example, has a foundation that tries to help with with healthcare. There are a number of nonprofits that are doing this. They're trying to subsidize the healthcare. Um, but again, the systems approach is what's missing. And I think without that, we are inefficient. We are duplicating in some instances or leaving gaps in other instances. Yeah. So it sounds like to me, and, and just confirm that that I'm following correctly, is there seems to be two major thrusts to, to the work that needs to be done. And number one is the systems approach of understanding the needs of the pet owners, what is going to make the most impact as far as keeping pets healthy, you know, what are the things that um, that clients really, I guess, struggle to pay for or things that make economic sense to really invest into supporting. And then the second part would be bringing that third party in in the room to support the systems driven focal points that we know will make a difference and and will uh, have maximum impact to providing the equity that we're looking for. Is is that correct? That's correct. But I will add a third. Please. And the third one is um, hitting home with respect to us as healthcare providers. And that is there needs to be attention to controlling the costs. Mm Mm-hmm. So we introduced the concept of incremental veterinary care. Now, I said introduce. What we really introduced was a a name for something that veterinarians have been doing forever. What is that that we've been doing? Well, forever, veterinarians have uh, been presented with uh, a patient needing help and the client had limited resources. We use scientific decision-making to address the care to the extent we could with the resources we had. Um, We couldn't do all of the things that we wanted to do with that individual, but we did something to try to safeguard the quality of life to relieve pain and suffering. And, but we never have had a a name for that. And we we call, call it incremental veterinary care because it's a tiered approach to the patient. You don't just start running a bunch of tests, especially if those test results are not going to change what you believe you need to do for the patient. So we've got to have the cost control element introduced as well. This term makes me so happy. (laughs) I love it because, um, and and, and I've I've wrestled with this for, for years is, you know, we preach, you know, practice the gold standard of care, practice the gold standard of care. And I, I know why we do that. And I'm not saying it's bad, you know, to, to, to hold that up. In another way, it has always been the elephant in the room for me that this is a, often unattainable, G- you know, given, given our cash out of pocket system. And you see so many veterinarians beating themselves up saying, well, I didn't get, I didn't, I didn't get to do this, or I didn't get to, um, I didn't offer or I, I, did, I wasn't able to do the top level service, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I feel like we did the best job we could do with the resources that we have. And there's almost like this, um, you know, cognitive dissonance there where you go, I know I'm supposed to get this thing, but I also feel in my heart that this was the best, most honest, um, you know, use of the, uh, of the resources that the pet owner had, you know what I mean? And I, I'm trying to, 
to to mesh what it means to be a good doctor with these two different and and sometimes uh, mutually exclusive desires. Yes. And so uh, that the incremental vet care it, that makes a that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. I, I I like that term a lot. Okay, may I expand on that just uh, so please uh, someone in your audience may need a little bit more granularity about that. I like to use the vomiting canine. The dog okay. vomited twice yesterday. Um, and today is a concerned family. And um, we've taken a history. The dog uh, ate a little bit of food this morning, actually. And you've performed a great physical examination. There's nothing remarkable going on. Uh, not sensitive in the abdomen. Seems very alert. In fact, Seems like a happy camper. Okay. Well, gold standard medical care would have me to take blood because mm -hmm. this is scientifically based. It could be the beginning of an infection or organ change that the blood profile may reveal. Uh, I'm going to also do a survey radiograph because, you know, they do swallow foreign objects. Mm -hmm. And then the radiograph is limited in its ability to image. And so I'm going to also do an ultrasound just in case we have something that trade in pick up. That's great medical care. Mm -hmm. And there are many citizens in this country, many families who can afford that level of care. They want that level of care, peace right. of mind and so forth. But that's generated a certain bill. Yeah, to, that's a $600, $700 bill, depending on where you're practicing. Right. Now, now, incremental veterinary care is also science-based, evidence-based, in that there's a 95-plus percent chance this is a self-limiting condition, given that history, given the exam. Let's take a wait-and-see approach, Okay. Uh, if 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 the dog vomits, if he vomits again tomorrow, then let's uh, let's get back in here, um, generating a very different kind of bill. Now, um, as simply as I stated that, I recognize that that can be problematic for some because they. Uh, some of our colleagues may really believe, no, no, no. You got if you don't do all of those things, that's malpractice. Well, no, that's not what the courts say. The courts don't pre prescribe medical treatments. And gold standard is not, or even standard of care is not defined by the practice acts. What we're expected to do is give our clients the options, notate that in the medical record mm -hmm. uh, so that it is clear that this, these options were communicated and then go forth from there. In other words, if... If you want to do fifteen hundred dollars worth of work, but but your client has five hundred, and you've noted that that in your record, um, there's not a liability issue there. Okay. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's not a like that. boogeyman. Like some get a little concerned about it. Um, the alternative is clear in my mind. Are we really saying that unless someone can afford the gold standard, there's no care available whatsoever? Is that black and white? I don't right. think so. Yeah, no, that that's great. You know, I, I think a lot of times people look at your example and would hear your point. And I think there's a tendency in some to catastrophize and say, oh, 
if we go this way, there's no bottom. You know what I mean? We're we're not going to do our jobs and we're going to have sick pets all the time that we miss. And you know, the caveat that, that I would add and say, you know, that I thought is true for, for years is um, I think you absolutely can offer people options. You lay them out. You explain the benefits and the drawbacks of, you know, of, of what we do. And that does not mean that you make recommendations that you don't believe in, you know what I mean, or that are not no. okay. If you don't believe it's okay exactly. uh, to, you know, to take this pet out of there, then you need to say, I do not recommend that you, you know, that, that you uh, uh, skip this. Or I would say, I don't think we're doing you any favors if we don't do these things. No. Um, I, I think you can have those those firm points at the bottom as well. And be, and be clear, it doesn't mean you're just throwing your hands up and saying, do whatever you want. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm going to support you in whatever it's no, I'm going to I'm going to educate you as to what's possible. Yes. But also, you know, I'm not going to recommend something that I don't believe is good medicine, you know, or acceptable medicine. Absolutely. At least. It needs to be science based. Yeah. And yes, the attending veterinarian needs to should feel comfortable with his or her decisions about managing that patient or refer them or not yeah. help them at all. You know, we always retain the option, the choice uh, of being able to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't help. You know, I yeah. really need to do this. You're not going to permit me to do this. And, 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 and I'm uncomfortable not doing it. So yeah. uh, that, that reality will be with us. Um, in our work uh, on this project, what we are finding, though, is that um, there are veterinarians who are very, very, very comfortable with incremental care. Like I said, it's mm -hmm. not a new concept. We're simply capturing data to start to try to standardize, you know, what those decisions are and what those costs turn out to be. But, um, yeah, it's um, I, I always fall back to this position, Andy. If we can agree not you and me, but the profession, if we can agree that gold standard care is out of reach for, for many families, that it is a barrier to health care, then what? Mm -hmm. And we might say, well, my heart goes out to the family. They lost a family member and the poor child in that family has experienced an adverse childhood experience, but, you know, they, they'll be all right. And I... I'm sorry, I feel bad at the end of the day. I, that case is on my mind. But there is another party here that we've got to be concerned about that we've not talked about. That's the community, community mm -hmm. health, public, public health. 65% of infectious diseases in humans are zoonotic. And um, I do believe that over the years, we may have ventured a little bit away from understanding our important role in safeguarding community health. Now, one, I've been asked, well, where are the diseases? How do we know? Well, they're out there. There's, a, there's an issue of lack of measures being taken. I, I met uh, an optometrist who practices in Southern Florida, low-income community. He showed me some of his images. Every year, he's seeing more and more children with the toxic hair lava in their retinas. Really? A, a, the most common intestinal parasite that takes pennies to treat 
when you think of the, the it's pretty easy to treat and control. But the lack of treatment and what does that do to the families in our communities? And then, of course, we read about lepto. It seems to be rearing its ugly head in many places. Mm -hmm. And now let's superimpose on all of this climate change. Okay. An increase of two degrees, average of two degrees in uh, global temperature means a change in the microbial world. Mm -hmm. Vectors are moving further north. We've been reading about the ticks. <laughs> you yep. know, last year before last, I mean, last year was a blur, but year before last, a lot in the literature about more and more ticks and further and further north. These are vectors, and some of the diseases that they carry can affect humans um, and serious, serious infections, in fact. And so when we think of our critical role as safeguarding public health, and we're the only ones who are guarding that particular gate. Who's going to do it if we're not doing it? Yeah. There is yeah. nobody else. We, we don't have another group other than veterinarians who are licensed, given the authority to control those diseases. Well, I love your point about us supporting the community. You know, I work with a lot of vet hospitals just across the U.S. and Canada, and we'll talk a lot about what what motivates your people. You know, like like the people who work here. What do they What do they care about? And one of the things that comes up again and again is people want to serve their community. You know, it, I I don't think that I don't think most of the people who work in vet medicine are here because they uh, thought this was the best way to make money. You know, I, I think that they came for other reasons. Exactly. You know, what I have found again and again is, you know, human-animal bond, um, but but supporting our community seems to be something that motivates our staff, you know, and, and our people. And so I think when you start to talk about what is our role in the community and protecting the community, I think that that's I think that's valuable. Can can we can we move back a bit uh, talking about community? You know, at the beginning you said you know this was a social justice issue. Um, can we start to unpack that a bit at this point? Sure. Is that all right? What do you mean when you say that? So social justice is uh, certainly in the news quite a bit these days, uh, rightfully so. My use of the term is toward the, uh, based on the core meaning about uh, one's privilege or opportunities within a society. And in this case, we're talking about the privilege of getting health care for your non-human family member, the opportunity to access health care for your non-human family member. When you're not afforded that privilege, then that's a social justice matter. Now, notice I'm not talking about law enforcement, mm -hmm. policing. We're talking about it at a much higher level. Uh, of just the uh, opportunity and privilege that one enjoys. So we start with, is the right to be in a relationship with a non-human individual uh, as your family, is mm -hmm. that a privilege that one should enjoy in this society? Most people seem to think so. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, without the other details here that... To put it another way, I, I don't find that there are people out there, at least the ones in the circles that I'm in, 
who believe that, yeah, the United States ought to pass laws and start denying you relationships for whatever set of reason, right? whether it's a relationship with another human or a non-human. And so at the core of it, it's about the, the right, some would say, but certainly the privilege to choose your relationships. Um, that's a social justice matter. Well, uh, to expand beyond that then is the what I was saying a moment ago, and that is the right or the privilege to be able to get medical care, whether it's your, for yourself or your family member, whether that individual is human or non-human. Um, so that's what I mean by social justice. Uh, one other element to that, though, that hits home for me as a veterinarian is if we accept that people should be able to choose their relationships and all members in those relationships ought to be able to have health care and we're the only ones who provide veterinary care, <laughs> it becomes our social justice issue. Okay. okay. We didn't cause it. We're not promoting it. We, you know, it as an issue, but we're saying that the solution must involve us as well because we're the only ones providing the care. Yeah, I no, I agree with that. I, I think that that's that's pretty rock solid logic. Is there's there's not going to be a way to approach this without veterinarian involvement and yeah. and buy into to the path forward. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what the movement towards pet health equity? looks like for your rank and file veterinarian. So as we start to talk about the the the, the systems approach, um, you know, um, how do you foresee or imagine uh, veterinarians, independent veterinary hospitals participating in that? And then the other part was, you know, as we talk about incremental care, do you see this as a change in our educational system? <laughs> you know, like we're going to, yeah. we need to, to teach our vet students a bit differently than we have in the past where it's been, here's here's the gold standard and we work to this. What yes, are your yes. thoughts there? Yeah, great questions and I appreciate them. I'm optimistic, first of all, about the future and here's why. There are demographic trends that promise that this challenge is not only, it's not only not going away, but it's going to get worse. And here's mm -hmm. why. Two demographic groups have two-thirds of the dogs and cats in this country. Number one, the millennials, largest mm -hmm. pet-owning cohort of Americans, followed by the baby boomers. Now, what is yeah. it about those two cohorts? Well, the millennials, according to everybody, it seems, they are projected to not make the income of their parents' generation. Mm -hmm. Meaning then our service delivery model, the pricing around our services, will not reach that generation effectively. The largest pet owning generation. Baby boomers are retiring daily onto limited incomes. And mm -hmm. while we could have paid cash for veterinary care, that's going away. So literally then more, more than half of the pets are with families that will struggle to participate in the service delivery model that we built going forward. But here's where I, why I'm optimistic. More than 50% of veterinarians now are millennials. I guess what we're saying here is when we really drill down on that generation and start to look at 
social justice, attitudes toward how we get things done, what is failing them, um, whether it's healthcare or climate or whatever, I'm saying that increasingly we're going to be made up of members who have reasons to fix this, to mm -hmm. address it, to be relevant. Um, I, I just sincerely believe that's what the future will hold. Now, it's not gonna be easy to transition. For example, we've got to dismantle um, or reconstruct our business model. And let me give you an example. Earlier, I said that we are a collection of independent entrepreneurs. Okay. We know that that model has duplicated equipment and a whole bunch of other things throughout a community, mm -hmm. which means then that every client that comes into my shop is actually subsidizing everybody else's x-ray machine too because my pricing my pricing has to be has to adjust for me having all of that equipment in the back okay. that may not be used every day mind you and therefore must be subsidized by the services so even wellness and preventive care in this case is priced to adjust for that overhead and you have to do that and so um I think we're going to see new models e emerge, and, and it may be based on the fact that if we just use the 80-20 principle, 80% 80 of what comes into the clinic today will not require specialists, nor will it require specialized equipment to take mm -hmm. care of it, okay? So, but if my, if my business has been built to handle everything from wellness to critical care, you understand what that translates into in my fees, right? Because of the overhead to maintain that. I think so. I think our business models going forward are going to be adjusted uh, out of cause, really, uh, in order to be sure that we can reach more families and um, even with a third party helping, because mm -hmm. the third party does not ensure that we can continue this model going forward. Right. So I'm optimistic about that. And then going to the training. Now, that one is uh, real troubling. Um, recent graduates, anecdotally at least, uh, are saying to us, this is anecdotal, but um, they feel very inadequate to practice incremental veterinary care because they were trained to do all of these things called mm -hmm. gold standard care. Yeah. Well, how did we end up doing that kind of training in the first place? Well, if we go back in time, when I trained, many of my clinical faculty were former general practitioners. And the kind of training I received was some really practical. This is what you see every day out there. This is what, what, what you do to, to address it. We didn't have a lot of the technologies then. Um, a lot of things were different then. So through time, consumers said we want more and more care, better, better care, higher and higher level care of care. We started to train specialists. And boy, I'm so happy to see where this profession is with specialists and our ability to treat some of the most challenging things. But also the faculty in all the veterinary schools became specialists. Mm -hmm. So students in recent years have only sat at the feet of specialists in the veterinary colleges. Now, yeah. yes, they go out and do their externships and they get a little real world experience, but it's very limited. 
the one thing is certain that they are leaving veterinary colleges with gold standard training. That's there's no doubt about it. So we need to adjust the veterinary curriculum curricula back to uh, including some really, really practical general medical training because 80% of what you're going to see on any given day does not require all the stuff we're exposing you to in veterinary college. And maybe someone has a different option for how we do that. I don't know what that might be, but I think that adjustment is needed. I will say one last thing about it. I have had the opportunity to visit quite a few of the veterinary colleges in the country, and without fail, there's significant anxiety amongst the students that they're not getting the kind of training they believe they should get. So many of them, you know, all of them have had some experience in veterinary practices. They have to do that to get into veterinary college. Some Mm -hmm. have been technicians, you know, in their prior lives. They know, they know what's going on in the community to reach people. And yet they come to veterinary college and it's all up here. That's what we're hearing. And that's uh, creating real anxiety. Yeah, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. I, um, and that's a lot to, that's a lot to sit with. <laughs> that's, that's a lot to process that. No, I, 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 I think there's a lot of truth to, to what you're saying. Um, where can veterinarians go to learn more about what you're doing about pet health equity in general? How can, how can rank and file veterinarians, uh, vet technicians, uh, you know, practice owners, how, how can they get in, involved? Well, I would first invite your interested uh, audience members to go to our website, which is PPHE, that's Program for Pet Health Equity, PPHE dot utk dot edu now at that website there's a lot of information you'll find the report that we released in 2018 on access to veterinary care where we did the national study of pet owners and veterinarians about barriers you'll find there a lot about align care which is the healthcare system or network that we've been researching and developing for the last three years. We are testing it out in a number of cities across the country. That testing is expanding and um, we will continue to put information on our website about uh, Align Care. Um, If a practice is interested in being a provider in the network, Hopefully, you're in one of the communities that we're already in, and you can find that information on our website. But if not, we'd love for you to reach out to us and um, either way and have a chat about uh, getting involved. I will caution everyone that at this point, funding is still limited. So mm-hmm. we are not in a position to say we now have that national healthcare system, but that's the path that we're on. Right. No, I think I think that's great. I, and I appreciate you taking time. And I know you're early in the journey and and, uh, and you're just starting to build something. I, I, I think it's so important. I really appreciate I appreciate you. I appreciate your efforts. Uh, I appreciate you coming on in your time and sharing with yeah. us today. And may I just uh, share one more thing that I think Please? is absolutely critical to everything we've talked about. And I will say it this way to be provocative, uh, not so provocative, but 
we are not big enough to fix this solely by ourselves, okay? Mm -hmm. Veterinary medicine is not, animal welfare is not, and it's that's because this is a societal challenge. The, the low socioeconomics is a complex thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more than just not having enough money for certain services. There are other barriers that are operating in the low socioeconomic sphere. And so if we as a profession want to bring about solutions, we must collaborate outside of veterinary medicine. So mm -hmm. this is a one health. That's the key phrase I wanted to land on. It takes a one health approach to address this complex societal problem because we need those who are focusing on the human realities. And why is that? Well, guess what? The dog doesn't have a barrier to veterinary care. Mm -hmm. It's the dog's people. <laughs> yeah. You understand? Mm -hmm. uh, because it's the people who have to pay that bill or to make those arrangements. And so a system that is understanding that the family unit is both human and non-human, and it's the human members who are in this case, negatively impacting the non-human members' ability to get health care. So working with social service agencies, working with social workers, working with people that we're now training in our communities who are able to address the human factor. While we in veterinary medicine become more creative in using science-based decisions to make health care affordable. And I don't like to use that phrase because that often triggers something, but we understand the context of this conversation is we're starting with understanding folks can't pay for everything we want to do. Yeah. And yeah. there has to be an option other than you're just out of luck. Yeah. And there needs to be a distinction for us. I, I understand what you say about, I, I think a lot of times when you say to veterinarians, you start talking about medicine has to be affordable. I think people take that personally. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's a criticism of them as a practitioner or they're doing something unethical or they don't deserve to earn a living. You know, I don't think I haven't heard. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that you think that's true. I, I don't think either, but I, I think, I think that the truthful reality is kind of what, what the, I, I really love the picture you painted early on is I think more and more of us are starting to have hard money conversations and talk to people about what is possible and what is feasible. And one other thing I just wanted to add here at the end to, you know, to the example that, that you sort of gave about uh, the millennials and millennial veterinarians sort of uh, seeing what this is like, you know, the group that I see that where this really is illustrated to me is in our support staff and our technicians. And so, you know, I, I really want my technicians to walk the talk, you know, for, for our practice. And so if we say this is what it means to to take good care of your pet and my technician can't afford to do that with her own pet, I, I struggle with that. You know what I mean? And and so to me, that that's where I see this issue a lot and kind of pushes it into my into my vision. And when you say, you know, this is the millennial generation, well, think about my technicians and I think, oh, well, yeah, well, maybe that, you know, that's, this kind of fits. And so anyway, I have some sitting and thinking to do with after this conversation, but um, I, I, this has been 
It's been very enlightening for me. I really appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck. I hope uh, that that you'll come back later on and let us know how things are going. If there's things that I can do to help support you in the future, I hope you'll let me know. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity to uh, visit with you and, and your listeners. Uh, I appreciate the work you do because um, we need media to educate the public. And, uh, you know, doing what you do makes a huge difference. I, I'm just assuming that based on what my belief is in podcasts and people accessing this as a way to to stay up to date. Um, your last point about your technicians, this is personal. Yeah, It's not over there. It's not out there. It's personal. We are living with, we work with people whose wages are paid by us that are not necessarily living wages. And it's not because we're exploiting them. It's the whole economics of what it means to provide services under the model that we're using. And we must tell ourselves, I believe, eh, there's got to be better options. Now, I, let's leave it there. I, I think I love that as, a, as an endpoint. I, I, I think that's fantastic. Thank you again for your time, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andy. And best to you. And that's our episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of this uh, out of this interview. Again, like I said, I, I really like this one. It just it gave me a lot to think about, and uh, and I enjoy those interviews. Anyway, if uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would write us an honest review. We have got like ninety five reviews. We are coming up on a hundred. That's just this weird uh, benchmark that I that I've set for myself. I'm like, wow. 100 reviews on iTunes would be amazing. Uh, share the show with your friends. Uh, let me know uh, how I can make it better. You can always send me an email. The email address is podcast at drandyrourke.com. That's podcast at drandyrourke.com. And I'm always interested uh, for what you're interested in. Guys, take care. Be well. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.